Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reid Galen. Today, our Thanksgiving week episode. Once again, I'm coming to you solo to answer questions that come from you, the hundreds of thousands of listeners of this podcast and of the Lincoln Project community. As you all know, we take these questions from social media, emails, town halls, and we're always looking to hear from you. And so if you have a question, don't hesitate to ask. You never know if you might hear your question discussed on the show. So with that, let's get into your questions. Our first question comes from David Bedoff about Steve Bannon. He says, Steve Bannon has now been charged with criminal contempt of Congress, yet he has no court-ordered restrictions such as a GPS ankle bracelet, a gag order, or being remanded to jail until his trial. Instead, not even off the steps of the courthouse, he continues to make threats of further violence with the intent of sedition. Why is this the way things are playing out? So, David, this is a great question and one that I've actually been thinking about. I do believe that Bannon was forced to give up his passport, but that's probably not a big hurdle to him fleeing justice if he thought that that's what he needed to do. We should remember that a lot of this is all just a delaying tactic. My guess is, is that ultimately he will either come to trial or he will go before Congress because for him, much like Trump, his former boss, he loves the spotlight. And so, you know, who knows how long this takes? It could be a month. It could be six months. But the point is, ultimately, he's going to have to either go to jail for his unwillingness to appear, or he is going to sit there at the table, bloviate, probably take the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination, which will inflame, you know, his opponents by saying, you know, he's taking the Fifth because he knows if he did say something, it would mean he's guilty. The right will say, you know, he doesn't have to answer these questions. It's a bullshit deal notwithstanding the fact that, you know, the Benghazi investigation went on for years with the sole intent of derailing a Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. But David, the thing that I really want to focus on, though, is what you said about the courthouse steps. You know, he came out of the courtroom and he said, we're going to take down the Biden regime. We've only just begun to fight. We need to get activated. These are, as you said, further threats to violence. And the thing that's fascinating to me, and it's not just about Bannon, It's something that I've really started to take note of over the course of the last year is that when Bannon or someone in the crazy right wing says something or makes an attack, that attack is not responded to in any real way. And what I mean is, why isn't anybody out there saying, Steve Bannon, you're not going to do that because the American people aren't going to allow you to do that. Now, the listeners and viewers of your Crankcase podcast might believe it. But the vast majority of them are a bunch of keyboard cowboys, you know, are denizens of 4chan and 8chan and Facebook groups and Telegram groups who have no desire, ability or wherewithal to actually get out and do anything. But you have to keep them fired up because it's good for your brand. It's good for your bank account. And it's good for keeping the forces of authoritarianism on the march. Remember, gang, as I've said before, Steve Bannon is a Leninist. He wants to burn 
what we have to the ground and rebuild it in his own gin-addled image. None of us want that. None of us need that. Last of all, the American people. We have to start telling people like Steve Bannon and these other bullies, stop it. We're not going to put up with this shit from you, right? Bullies will do whatever they do because no one stands up to them. No one goes out on the playground and punches them in the nose. Steve Bannon has a gin blossom worthy of a punch. So what I would say is, why does he keep doing what he's doing? Why do all of these people, whether or not it's Trump himself or the rest of his goons, because they face no sanction. They face no political sanction. They face no legal sanction. The only people who have faced any social sanction, frankly, are Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump because they got ran out of New York and they can't go back. But for the rest of them, they live the grift. They live the life. They wait for Trump to come back and they find all of their acolytes and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and they build on this. That's not to say they are not a dangerous movement because they are, gang. They are, they are, they are. They will do the things they talk about doing if they have a chance to get back in power in 2022 and 2024. So as a follow-up, Miriam Johnson asks, I'm afraid of Steve Bannon's, quote, disorienting tactics. How dangerous is he? Well, Miriam, as I just said, I think he has the capacity to be very dangerous because, again, he has no apparent concern for the safety of the country, for the future of the country, for the rule of law or democracy, because he doesn't believe in any of that stuff. Remember that he gave a speech, I think last month or the month before, where he talked about how he wanted to deploy thousands of, quote, shock troops into the next Republican administration so they could basically go into the federal government and tear the circuitry out of every last federal department. This is not a guy who is a builder. He's a destroyer. He's a burner. And that's where I think we have to be very mindful of what it is they'll do. And this is where, guys, the hardest part comes is communicating to individual American voters what this actually means for them. The part of being a democracy is that we're all in it together. The part of an autocracy or an authoritarian movement is that one person or a small group of people make all the decisions that ultimately affect all of our lives. It is a completely arbitrary and capricious way to live. In Putin's Russia or in Orban's Hungary, your life is dictated to you by what the ruling class or the ruling individual says, rather than, I want to be a veterinarian, or I want to be a park ranger, or I'm going to go to trade school and become a carpenter. At some point, how loyal you are to a regime determines where you'll go in life. We see this with the Chinese. They have loyalty scores. This stuff is not far behind. I know sometimes people think we're Cassandras. I know sometimes people think we cry wolf. We don't do these things. We don't say these things because we want to. We say these things because we know what history has taught us and we know what kinds of people they are. They are without scruple. They are without moral. And all they care about is their own power and self-aggrandizement. Dave Pell was my guest last week, and he talked about his father, who was Polish in the run-up to World War II. And he walked around with his dad and said, I don't understand why there aren't young people in the street. We agree. And it's right now, guys, America's still in its slumber. We got to start to wake every last person up because at the end of the day, next November, we got to make sure Republicans are not given the keys to anything that can help them derail this country. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Mommy Dearest on Twitter asks, I'm preparing for Thanksgiving dinner banter. The Trumpers always reach for, I agree with his policies, as if that negates their responsibility for Trump's immoral behavior. What policies are they referring to? By the way, these are not the one percenters. Well, Mommy Dearest, thanks for the question. I think a lot of this is vestigial republicanism, right? The idea of individual liberty and a muscular and moral foreign policy 
a commitment to fiscal conservatism. It's all marketing slogans. It doesn't mean anything. It's just an easy shorthand for saying, I may not like Trump's tweets, but he's not a bad guy. Well, as you said, there's no separating the man from the method from the madness. It all wraps up into one. And so if you're sitting at the country club and you're like, oh, Trump, what a bore. But, you know, my taxes are low. You're in on it. You're complicit. If you're working class and you say, well, he doesn't do much for me, but he, you know, lets me release my inner anger, my resentment. Okay, you're complicit. You've decided that you're willing to give up the way that you live and the way that everybody else lives because it makes you feel better somehow. That's not how democracy works. Democracy means somebody has to be willing to lose, and the winners have the opportunity to govern and hopefully govern in a way that does the best for the most people. And so I would say when it comes to policy, it'll be taxes, it'll be judges, it'll be my freedom. That's the other part too, is when you start to ask people about policies, the conversation gets short in a real hurry. You know, they might talk about CRT, they might talk about transgender, whatever it is. Remember, they won't be policies. They're almost always going to be culture issues because that's where Republicans fight. All right. Miles Wallace asks, do you think Republicans actually believe the agenda of lies that Trump continues to push or are they just afraid to disagree or is it something different entirely? So, you know, Miles, this is a great question, and I thank you for asking it, because this is something uh, Maggie Haberman, who writes for The New York Times, who's covered Trump for a long time, said something on Twitter last week that really resonated with me, which is we shouldn't overstate the fear factor of Trump. It does exist, don't get me wrong, but it really exists for like the Kevin McCarthy's and Mitch McConnell's of the world. The rest of the folks believe in this stuff. There are a lot of people who believe that, you know, authoritarianism is better than democracy, that we should have the grand leader, that things would be so much better and so much more efficient. We get things done. A supporter of ours lives in Connecticut, said he saw his member of Congress, happens to be a Democrat, and the member of Congress said, like, you have to understand, like, there's a lot of guys in the Republican conference who'd be happy if we were Turkey. Turkey might be a democracy in name, but like, Erdogan's going to get reelected, just like Orban or Putin's going to get reelected with 99% of the vote. You know, think about it like in a Star Wars capacity, right? What's the fastest way to power as a Jedi? The dark side, right? But it comes with a lot of downside. It comes with a lot of really ugly side effects. Luke Skywalker had to work a lot longer, a lot harder, you know, to stay on the right side of the force. I hate to make it so simple, but here's the thing. People like Taylor Green, people like Gosar, people like Bobert. Even now we see Kevin McCarthy. He's afraid, but he has to pretend to be the true believer because he knows everyone in his conference, if it's the Trumpers, loathe him because they know he's a squish. And the otherwise, quote unquote, old establishment Republicans see him as a turncoat to something that they used to believe in. So he's in a lot of trouble. But I think, Miles, the point is, is they're both. There are some that are afraid and there are some that believe. Is it something else entirely? Who's to say? You know, Michael Flynn was on the stage at one of these crazy rallies. He does saying, don't give money to Republicans anymore. You have Roger Stone down in Florida saying, you know, he may run as a libertarian against Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor down there, just to make sure he loses. So there's a lot of sort of internal insanity that governs these things that, you know, sometimes you have to just sit back and watch and see what happens. All right, let's talk a little build back better. Our next question comes from Amelia West. She asks, now that the dust has settled from Kevin McCarthy's bizarre eight-and-a-half-hour speech, I'm still left confused about why it ever happened. The Build Back Better bill passed in the House the next day, and I'm not really even seeing any consolation, quote, attaboys from other House Republicans. What was the point? 
Well, as Amelia, as I was just saying in my answer to Miles, Kevin McCarthy is the most endangered species on Capitol Hill right now. He never liked Trump. This was a guy who used to work for a guy named Bill Thomas from Bakersfield, California, where, where McCarthy is also from, who was a lion of Congress, you know, the kind of guy who went to work every day and actually took the job seriously. McCarthy has always been a chameleon. When he was in California as the assembly minority leader, he was a dealmaker. He would say to the Democratic speaker, I know you guys are going to do this anyway, but I need something for my people. And he would get it. Then, you know, he went to Congress and it was people from California. It's, you know, the political ATM of the country. He was young. He seemed non-threatening. He seemed like a Republican for a new generation. The young guns of Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor. And he raises money by the boatload. And that's why he got into leadership so quickly. That's why he became the minority whip and then majority whip so quickly was not because he's good at whipping votes because he's not. He wasn't then and he's not now. He has no constituency in the United States House of Representatives other than the fact that he carries around, you know, a 30, 40, 100 million dollar bank account every cycle. But here, Amelia, is what's going on with McCarthy. What he realizes is that a lot of the most conservative members raise almost all of their money in small dollar donations, five, 10, 25 bucks. The money that he can provide them in a tough race in the form of super PAC or independent expenditures is less valuable to those people now for a couple of reasons. One, because they don't want his money. Two, they don't want his name anywhere near them. And three, because a lot of these districts are so gerrymandered, they've been drawn in such a way that they're not going to need a lot of help. And so he is caught sort of in the middle of the highway. You know, he gets run over by the Trump folks on one side and he gets run over by the establishment folks on the other. And that's not a healthy place for a minority leader to be. And let me just be clear. He is never, ever going to be Speaker of the House. Jim Jordan will be Speaker of the House long before Kevin McCarthy ever is. And so McCarthy's sort of whistling past the graveyard here. And I think a long answer to a short question, Amelia, the eight and a half hour speech was trying to prove his bona fides to the most conservative members and wackiest members of his conference. The problem is even after eight and a half hours, they don't buy anything he says. And so, you know, it's just one more performative act in what will be, I think, an ever shortening career. Derek Brooks asks, would the Lincoln Project consider running attack ads on Senators Manchin and Cinema to help pass the Build Back Better bill? You know, Derek, it's an interesting question. I think we've had it before. The issue for dealing with folks like Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema is that it's really hard to understand what even their motivation is. Like, why are they doing this? I think that they did it at first because they realized that they were swing votes. You know, Manchin is a Democrat in the most Republican state in the country from West Virginia. Cinnamon used to be a far left progressive. I think she was almost a green. So her transformation is a little bit more interesting. But I think what happened ultimately was that they both suffer from indispensable man and woman syndrome in Washington, D.C., which is there was a picture of Manchin, I think a couple of weeks ago, someone took from up above and he's standing in the Capitol Plaza and there's like 50 reporters huddled around him in a scrum. I think he loves being the guy who's always going to get the first word in the morning and the last word in the evening. He likes being able to go to the White House and have the president and his staff say, Joe, come on, we're willing to do something here and sort of be a cipher or a sphinx because he knows as soon as he makes a decision about something, a lot of that stuff goes away. Cinema too. They like the attention they get from the media, from the Republicans, from donors. And so what I think you're seeing here now is that they got themselves into a position where they really wanted the Klieg lights. But now a lot of folks are going, OK, we gave you the podium. What is it that you're here for? 
long way of saying I'm not sure that anything moves them, to be honest with you. I don't think the Lincoln Project attacking Joe Manchin in West Virginia or Kirsten Cinema in Arizona has any effect on them because they've already received incredible pressure from their own party, hasn't done much. The voters in West Virginia should be more up in arms with Manchin because West Virginia has been such a recipient of federal aid over the decades, going back to Senator Robert Byrd, for whom most of the state is named after. And I think Cinema understands that, you know, she's up again in 2024. Arizona's a purple state. You know, she's trying to find some path. But ultimately, if you're going to be a deal maker, you got to have points you want to bring to the deal. Neither one of them have done that. And I'm not sure any attack ads from us would change that. All right. So let's talk about some election matchups. Joy Hilton asks, I love Beto and despise Abbott, but I just do not see Beto beating any Rathuglican. I'm born and raised Texan and 95% of the people I know are Trumpers. Do you really think Beto has a fighting chance? So I think Beto does. I had Beto on the podcast last summer. We just re-ran that. So please tune into it. It was a great conversation. Beto's a terrific guy, and we've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. I would say a couple of things. There's the Beto factor. He is a very charismatic guy. He is a fresh face. The beauty of politics is that candidates who lose once or twice are often much better candidates and campaigners than they were when they'd only won. And so I think that what you see out of Beto's early time is he's going around the state. I think he was on his way to San Angelo today. He was down at the border. He was in Dallas. And I know that crowd size is no indication of whether or not you'll win next November. But I will say this. Beto is probably the only candidate who could energize Texas Democrats, of whom there are a lot more than there used to be, despite Republicans' control of the state for 25 years. I think also he has the ability to appeal to younger voters. I think the fact that he represented El Paso means that he has a much better view into the Latino community, not only in El Paso, but in the Rio Grande Valley. And I think that he has the ability to appeal to what I would call former Republicans or estranged Republicans who are probably pretty fiscally responsible, you know, don't like taxes, don't like debt, but also don't like a lot of the social stuff that we're seeing out of Abbott. And so, you know, I think we got a long way to go. Abbott's still got to clear a primary. So let's talk about Abbott for a second. Greg Abbott's been in, as Stuart Stevens, one of our partners, likes to say, Greg Abbott has been in office since the last millennium. He was a Supreme Court justice. He was attorney general. And now he's been governor for eight years. If there's one thing that voters like, it's new more than anything. Abbott's been around a long time. You know, he's got $50 million in the bank. That's good for him, right? He's got a track record he's going to try and run on. What's bad for him? Well, again, he's been around a long time. He's got two people running against him in the Republican primary, Alan West and Don Huffines, dragging Abbott to the right. And we have been helpful in that because we recognize a weakness in Abbott and we went after him for the last couple of months. Abbott is likely to call another special session of the legislature in January to clean up all of the whacked out right wing issues that he didn't get to in 2021. That is going to further alienate moderate Republicans, independents and conservative Democrats, of which, again, there are a lot. It's going to tell people in rural counties that this guy really doesn't care about governing. He just cares about being in power. And it's going to show him to be just a political opportunist. And again, like a Kevin McCarthy Greg Abbott can never be a Trump true believer. He can never be a MAGA true believer. He's got to do these things, but it's all performance. And I believe that the voters will notice this. I don't think he'll lose his primary in March, but I think it'll be a tougher run for him than he thinks it will be. And lastly, I think the big X factor here for Greg Abbott is whether or not the lights stay on this winter. Last winter, the power went out in Texas for days. 
people were without electricity. They were out without water. A lot of people froze to death. And we were just down there a few weeks ago. And a lot of Texans I talked to still have PTSD about that time. And so there was just a story out today that the board that runs the utility, and remember that the Texas power grid is disconnected from the eastern and western United States because the power companies want to be completely deregulated. And now we've seen why utilities have regulation. They are on the take from the state. Greg Abbott and the legislature gave billions of dollars away to gas companies. The next day, one of those gas company CEOs gives Greg Abbott a $1 million campaign contribution. So it's a total pay-to-play ugly business. But I'll say this, if the lights go out in Texas this winter, Greg Abbott is done, 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 done. Governors have one job that matters more than anything else, and that is keeping their people safe. If Greg Abbott goes into a second winter in which his own avarice, greed, and political future are placed well above the actual lives of Texans, he's done. All right. David Dyer asks, what are Chris Christie's chances as a presidential candidate in 2024? Uh, we'll make this quick, David. Zero. Okay, moving on. January 6th, Nikki Sparks asks, what can we do to put pressure on Attorney General Merrick Garland and the January 6th committee to move faster? We have one damned indictment, and it's for contempt of Congress. They have the Rittenhouse verdict, voter suppression laws passed, gerrymandering done, and the big lie continues. It's been 10 months, and no officials have been charged for January 6th. Well, look, Nikki, a couple of things. One is, you're absolutely right. My fear is that the only people who are ever going to be brought to trial or brought to justice for January 6th are the people who actually stormed the building. My fear is that from Trump on down to all of his goons, to Rudy Giuliani, to the Kraken lady, to Lynn Wood, to Steve Bannon, to Stephen Miller, to Don Jr. and all of them, the Republican Attorneys General Association, all the fundraisers who helped raise this money for these things. My fear is that none of them will ever be brought to justice. The American justice system is not meant to be fast. It puts the presumption of innocence of the charged or the accused above everything else. And so what I would say is that the Garland Justice Department is probably doing the things it can. Whether or not they're going to indict anybody, I don't know. There's no good way to do this. If you start indicting people and putting them on trial, they will become martyrs. You just have to be okay with that. The point is, if these folks are not brought to trial, if they're not indicted, if they're not made to face a jury of fellow Americans, then as you know, the old saying goes, then a coup that goes unpunished is just a practice run. And so that's my fear. And I would say this too, is that in this country, at least at the federal level, we don't really prosecute high officials very often, at least not since the 70s. Maybe we did with the cabinet official here or there. Spiro Agnew was the last, you know, vice president to get in trouble for tax evasion. And I think that was like 1973. And so, you know, we don't do this very often. And I think that the Justice Department very much wants to stay out of politics. Unfortunately, politics, justice, and the Constitution have met here, and they're going to have to make a decision about what they want to do. I hope they do it. I hope the January 6th committee comes roaring out of Christmas and the New Year and puts these people on trial. It has to be, guys, I know this is a terrible word. I know some people are going to get offended by it. It has to be a spectacle. It has to be enough drama, often enough, to draw the attention of the American people. And I'm not talking about the folks like us that listen to this stuff and deal with this every day, but the person who sits in Kansas City or the person who sits in greater Detroit and says, what's going on here? Wait, they did what? That's where we've got to get. Republicans are fabulous at this. They know how to do it. That's why they did Benghazi. Democrats, they want to do things for the right reason in the right way. They don't like spectacle. They think it's beneath them. I get it. But if you want to make a move, if you want to make real progress on this stuff, 
they're either going to have to be hauled up in front of the witness table and be made to plead the fifth, or they're going to have to get hauled into the courthouse for obstruction again. All right. Lily Norris says, is the new Tucker Carlson documentary about January 6th going to prove to be one step too far for Fox News? You know, Lily, nothing has been so far, so I'm not sure why we would believe this would be, unless Fox attorneys said, if we run this, we open up ourselves to some sort of litigation, civil or criminal, then they might not do it. But of course, Tucker is their golden boy. He is the most popular person on the network. They will be loath to get sideways with him because here's what they know. As much as he says bad things about Democrats, he says lots of bad things about Republicans he doesn't like, and he would be happy to take to the airwaves to whack the hell out of the network for not running his documentary. So do I think they'll run it? I think they will. All right, let's talk about everybody's favorite demented dentist, Paul Gosar. John Clayton asks, why hasn't the Secret Service and or the FBI paid a visit to Paul Gosar as a result of his anime video posted twice threatening the president and Representative Ocasio-Cortez? You know, this is a great question, John. And I'm just thinking about this as you ask the question. It seems now that being a member of Congress now means blanket immunity. He goes out and does this, you know, depicting images of killing the president, which is a federal crime. Killing anybody is just a crime. And now what we see is that they do and say these things again, as I said earlier, there's no sanction, no political sanction, no legal sanction. And so, you know, if I went out and said, I'm going to kill X and I said it publicly, the sheriff's department would show up at my door and say, what the hell are you doing? That would be the right move. We see this too with like, Richard Burr from North Carolina and his stock trades, right? Like all these Republican senators, you know, dumped their stocks or bought stocks in COVID related things right at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. Where's the law enforcement? Where's the consequence? And so, John, it's a great question. And I think it's one that we should all be concerned about. I mean, being elected to public office should not mean that you get to act however you want, do whatever you want, say whatever you want. If anything, you should be held to a higher standard. Now it seems we have no standards for these people. And it's absolute horseshit. And it frustrates me and it concerns me because this is the kind of behavior that doesn't just stay inside of one party. It will seep across the aisle and it will become something that I think probably the political class feels too much, which is they're not accountable to their voters. They're not accountable to the American people writ large. They're only accountable to their donors, to their political supporters, and any pillar of support they might have inside the beltway. And it's a dramatically unhealthy thing for democracy. All right, gang, thank you so much for joining me today and for asking such great questions. Before we go, though, I want to say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And let me just tell you what I'm thankful for. First and foremost, obviously, my family and my friends and my community, but also for everybody at the Lincoln Project. Most of them do 18, 20 hours a day worth of work with little to no public notoriety. And they are incredible people. They work their tails off. They have been with us since the beginning, so I could not be more thankful for them. I want to thank Rob and everybody at Podville Media for helping me do this twice a week and teaching me as I baby step towards podcast hosting. And lastly, I want to say thank you to everyone here. More than a million people a month listen to this podcast, and I could not be more humbled or more flattered for it. I hope that you will continue to listen. I hope you find it entertaining. I hope you find it educational. I hope we give you things that you can do practically in your communities, in the places that matter to make sure that we can preserve this democracy. I hope each and every one of you has a safe, healthy, and happy Thanksgiving. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can follow the project at Project Lincoln. Sign up for our incredibly important work as we get into 2022, lincolnproject.us. I will see you all next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. Bye-bye.
thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com